This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, conspiracies. When it comes to Latin American affairs, they abound. But is there any truth to them? We'll search for facts concerning conspiracies in Venezuela and the death of Hugo Chavez. But first, Kurt Devine is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. John Kerry traveled to South America for the first time as U.S. Secretary of State this week. Kerry met with leaders in both Brazil and Colombia to discuss issues of trade, peace, and U.S. surveillance activities. During his visit to Colombia, Kerry voiced U.S. support for the peace talks between the Colombian government and the FARC rebel group taking place in Cuba. As a friend of Colombia, President Obama wants the people of, uh, of, of this country to know that when you achieve that peace, the United States of America will do everything in our power to help respect it and to help you to be able to implement it. These comments were overshadowed by the reports leaked by former intelligence contractor Edward Snowden describing a U.S. spy program in Latin America. After discussing the issue, Colombian officials pledged to continue cooperating with the U.S. Colombian Foreign Minister Maria Angela Alguin describes this understanding. All of the support in this context has been more than helpful, and we hope that it can continue to take place in a framework of bilateral relations and the legal framework that we have. We have asked for explanations that we believed were necessary to keep working together. Kerry was met with demands for answers in Brazil, but he urged leaders not to allow the spying controversy to affect growing trade between the U.S. and Brazil. Kerry gave no indication on the trip that the U.S. would change the way it gathers information. Paraguay swore in businessman Aracio Cartes as its new president. Cartes won the April election with about 46% of the votes as the leader of the center-right Colorado party. He pledged to improve Paraguay's government in his inaugural speech. A patriotic government, a government that is functional, efficient, and inclusive. This is necessary for Paraguay to grow and develop. Cartes won popular support during his campaign by promising job creation and poverty reduction. The United Nations began investigating a North Korean ship detained for smuggling arms from Cuba last month. UN experts are seeking to determine if the weapons on board violate an international ban on arms shipments to North Korea. Authorities in Panama seized the ship as it passed through the nation's canal with weapons equipment hidden underneath sacks of sugar. The ship's crew members have been charged with threatening Panama's security. With the announcement of the investigation, former Cuban President Fidel Castro said North Korea gave Cuba significant military support in the 1980s. Workers at the world's largest copper mine in Chile went on strike for 24 hours to demand higher pay and better conditions. About 2,500 workers began an unannounced strike at the Escondida mine. Although the workers returned to work a day later without having their demands met, they planned to meet this weekend to discuss another strike. A two-week strike at the Escondida mine in 2011 caused international copper prices to rise. 
Police in Venezuela have a new crime to fight. Thieves in the northwest state of Zulia have been stealing women's hair to sell on the black market. Police have begun a special operation to stop the thieves who have been cornering women in public places and using scissors to cut off their hair. Thieves sell the stolen locks as hair extensions and earn about $80 for each sale. President Nicolas Maduro has vowed to stop the theft, but analysts say the crime reflects poor security throughout Venezuela. For Latin Pulse, I'm Kurt Devine. Thanks, Kurt. Some of Latin America's headline-grabbing presidents would have us believe conspiracies are around every corner. Some say the late Hugo Chavez of Venezuela gained much of his fame from advancing such ideas. At one time or another, he said the evil empire of the United States was responsible for causing the earthquake that hit Haiti in 2010. And on several occasions, he said the U.S. was preparing an invasion of Venezuela. Perhaps the most lasting of these conspiracies was the theory advanced by Chavez that the U.S. was infecting the leftist leaders of Latin America with cancer. Notably, Chavez died of a heart attack related to his treatment for cancer earlier this year. Venezuela's current president, Nicolás Maduro, repeated those infection allegations after the death of Chavez, and Maduro has convened a special investigation into the former president's death. In the past few months, Maduro's government has also advanced theories that CNN in Espanol was part of a group plotting a coup against the government. Maduro's government has also said mercenaries from Central America and Colombia had been sent to the country to assassinate Maduro and other political leaders. Maduro and Chavez are not alone in the use of conspiracies to make a point. Rafael Correa of Ecuador and Evo Morales of Bolivia, both close allies of Venezuela, have also accused the U.S. of trying to destabilize their countries. So this week, we're fulfilling our journalistic obligation to seek out truth and to eliminate rumors and speculation. We turn to Professor Carlos de la Torre at the University of Kentucky for answers. De la Torre is the co-editor of the new book, Latin American Populism, in the 21st century, and the author of Populist Seduction in Latin America. Here are excerpts from our conversation conducted via Skype. Populism is a type of political discourse. It's a Manichaean discourse that divides politics between good and evil. So the political struggle is a struggle between the virtuous people against evil elites. And these evil elites, for the most part, represent the interests of foreign powers such as the United States. Now, uh, the categories of the people in elites or the oligarchy are very vague, and they shift and change historically and according to the political conjuncture. But one of the constants that stays there is all of this anti-imperialistic discourse that makes sense in Latin America because of its relationship with the United States. However, the way in which this Manichaean discourse, this populist discourse is used, is to link different elites or different oppositional figures to the interests of the United States. So the struggle is not between political adversaries, but between the defenders of the homeland, the defenders of the nation, against all of these elites that defend the interests of an imperial power such as the United States. And, of course, here they have to create all of this conspiracy theory, right? The idea that that this elite, because the virtuous people finally arrived to power, embodied in the the charismatic leader, in the populist leader, 
this leader is fighting against all of these great powers that are constantly conspiring. In your opinion, is there something to those allegations that that there is a, a greater power conspiring against these countries, Ecuador, Venezuela, Bolivia, some of the countries that you would identify as populist countries? Well, you know, unfortunately, the United States, especially under the Bush administration, gave ample ammunition for Chavez to go into all of those charades against the United States. The coup d'etat was supported by the United States government and by the Spanish government. And recently, when I don't know how the Europeans decided that Snowden was hiding in the plain of Morales, <laughs> and after Morales have to, you know, he was, he was almost killed because he had to refuel and he didn't have a place to, to go. I mean, all of this give ammunition. It, all of this gives credibility in the, eyes, in the eyes of the followers that indeed there are conspiracies against these leaders. So, I mean, you know, there are certain actions of the United States government that are used in the United States government, especially not, not so much under Obama, but of course you have the cases of spying, which is more complicated. But uh, under Bush, it was very easy for Chavez to have this antagonistic figure. We see now that the Maduro administration continues this path um, with saying that perhaps Hugo Chavez was poisoned rather than dying of cancer, that there have been numerous allegations that uh, of coup attempts already, uh, one being made against CNN um, very early in the Maduro administration. So it, do you see this as a tactic that continues to work? That's a very good question. It worked for Chavez. It works for Correa. I mean, because they see politics as an antagonistic struggle between friends and enemies, you have to destroy your enemies and you have to constantly manufacture new enemies. So the first enemies were the political, the traditional political parties. Later on, their, their, their enemies are the media that supposedly serves imperial powers. Uh, sometimes they go against particular business elites, so they always have to constantly manufacture enemies that embody evil in the interests of foreign powers. And in that sense, they have to constantly create and recreate these conspiracies and these narratives that, that they are plotting against these governments and these nations. But of course, there is an element of credibility. There is an element of craziness. I mean, when, when Maduro says that the United States poisoned Chavez, I mean, then you start to go into this crazy science fiction type of paranoia more than into some type of reality. So I think that there is a margin of credibility where these leaders have to have to operate. And I think that Chavez was very skillful in because he, he not only used an aggressive language, but he also used humor and he was mocking uh, president, former President Bush. But Maduro is much more rude. He's not a very intelligent politician. So all of the allegations that they have are extremely rude. They are not very well thought. And, uh, and and the element of credibility starts to, to to get lost there. So in your opinion, some of these leaders that employ these tactics remain credible and others do not. Can you help us with a list of beyond Maduro who might not be credible in using these tactics? Well, I mean, let's go, for example, to the case of Rafael Correa. 
Rafael Correa is a U.S. trained economist. He has a Ph.D. in economics. He was a member of the, he, he, he's an academic. He was the chair of the departments of economics in a, a privately elite university in Ecuador. And he entered into politics without any links whatsoever to the organized left or to any political uh, party. And so, you know, when he got to power, his whole platform was to refound the nation, to found the nation again, to, to totally change the structures of Ecuadorian society. Everything that happened in the past needed to be changed because we have lived through this long night of neoliberalism and through the reign of the, these cartels of corrupt politicians. So he had to found the nation again. And of course, he started to manufacture a series of enemies. The first enemies were po traditional political parties, but later on the struggle was against the media. Then when there was a series of protests by the police and in some sectors of the military to the changes in the law of public service that was going to affect their salaries, their promotions, the way in which things operated, they had a strike and Correa went personally to face these strikers. And the police who were striking and stopping traffic did not allow Correa to get into the into the police barracks where they were meeting, and Correa insisted and got in again. And when he wanted to give a discourse, he was um, he was booed by the public. And when he was booed, he lost his temper and told the cops, "If you want to kill the president, there he is. You can kill me now." And after that, he was attacked. Now, Correa used that incident to portray the idea that there has been a conspiracy of sectors of the right wing in the United States, sectors of the left in, in Ecuador, the media that they were trying to plot. So in, in a way, they, what they are able to do, and, and here is the problem of credibility, is that they transform particular historical events with these narratives of a big conspiracy against them and against the people and against the nation. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. What you're arguing, though, then, is that in this particular case, Correa created a context, a context that, that made it more believable for him. Oh, yeah. And he has been very successful in doing that. I mean, if you have an opinion against this official narrative that there was a coup d'etat, you can be sued. I mean, that happened to this journalist, Emilio Palacio, who wrote an editorial where he was wondering what will happen if they trial Correa for, putting, for, for letting the army invade a, a, a hospital. And he was sued. And of course, without an independent legal system, uh, he was found guilty, and then later on he was pardoned by Correa. So, I mean, they create a whole scenario where these narratives tend to become the official narrative. And here comes the problem of the control of the media. I mean, uh, Chavez, Correa, and to an extent also Morales, they believe that they are leading new historical moments, that they are the inheritors to the founding fathers of their nation, that they have an historical mission. And this historical mission is going to result in the total transformation of their nations. And they have to continually create and recreate and manufacture these enemies that are conspiring against them. Promises a liberation from the domination of the elites. It's, 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 it's a democratizing promise that for the most times ends in authoritarian regimes. So the relationship between populism and democracy, I think, is very complex and very interesting. 
do you consider the Maduro, Morales, or Correa governments to be authoritarian? Oh, yes. Um, especially the Ecuadorian and the Venezuelan government. And for the most part, political scientists are using now the term uh, competitive authoritarianism to describe these regimes. I mean, these regimes come to power by winning elections. And the moment in which people go to the polls, the elections tend to be clean, except with the Maduro election, which we don't know if it was clean or not. But for the most part, under Chavez and under Correa, the moment in which you go and vote is clean. It's transparent. You have international observers that go, that see that, and everything works fine. I was an observer in the, late, in the election uh, of October last year when Chavez won his last term. And, you know, as, as observers, we couldn't find any regularity at the moment of voting. But what happens before the election, how the electoral playing field favors incumbents, how, how the media is forbidden to openly uh, cover the elections, how the electoral boards favor the incumbents, all of these elements make it very easy for the incumbent to win and create an extremely uneven field. So in that sense, these regimes are authori competitive authoritarian. Yet, one of the big differences when we use the term authoritarian about these regimes is that they have not used massive disappearance and murders of their citizenship. The way in which they attack the opposition is by using courts and by accusing the opposition of being terrorists. For instance, in Ecuador, an indigenous leader who now is an assemblyman was sentenced of was sentenced with the allegation that he's a terrorist to 12 years in prison without any evidence whatsoever. So the way in which they attack the opposition is very different, right? It's not like in the southern cone or in Central America by killing and disappearing people. It's by using a legal system that is in the hands of the government. So these governments are authoritarian. You know, these governments share certain political similarities in the sense that incumbents have all of the privileges to, to win elections, that they are in a war against the media, that the opposition does not always enjoy the same privileges that it should. So this, these governments are limiting the capacity of contestation, of pluralism, are very anti-plural. But they differ in the sense in which they offer common people a way to participate and to be engaged in, the, in, in, in politics. Thank you, Professor Carlos de la Torre of the University of Kentucky, the author of the new book, Latin American Populism in the 21st Century, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Thanks so much. Coming up, a medical expert weighs in on the conspiracy theory surrounding the death of Hugo Chavez. Stay with us. A man is found guilty of trafficking Brazilian women to the UK to make them work as prostitutes. The head of an international trafficking network is jailed in Romania, and three people are sent to prison in America for operating a Mexican baby smuggling ring. Human traffickers trick and deceive their victims, but by joining forces we can bring these criminals to justice. Support the United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking, ungift.org. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. One of the conspiracy theories concerning the death of Hugo Chavez is that he was poisoned using polonium-210, a radioactive element. We sought out Dr. Ronald Gones, who has written extensively about polonium poisoning. Gones is a senior medical consultant with the MJW Corporation. 
He is affiliated with the Center for Applied Environmental Public Health at Tulane University, and he's a senior medical advisor and staff physician at the U.S. Department of Energy site at Oak Ridge, Tennessee. We talked to him via long distance at his office in Tennessee. Here are excerpts from our interview. As we discussed, it's all rather problematic until we have some testing done. Uh, Polonium-210 is is very difficult to measure. You have to have an index of suspicion that it's happened, and then it will require tissue samples or uh, urine or fecal samples. So this needs to be done. It probably needs to be done expeditiously. Let's back up a bit, and and if you could explain a little bit for our audience what exactly is polonium-210. Polonium-210, it's actually an ideal poison in a way. It's a radioactive uh, isotope. It's found in the Earth's crust. Uh, it's also produced in reactors. If you're old enough to remember, it's used uh, was used a while back as an anti-static device on vinyl records and that sort of thing. Uh, it's radioactive, uh, has a half-life of about 138 days, uh, and it also puts out... Uh, two alpha particles, uh, which uh, are very difficult to detect inside the body. So it requires testing of some uh, uh, body fluids or body tissue. Why do you say that it's an ideal poison? Well, it's unless you have a high index of suspicion, one would not uh, think of polonium-210 as, as a poison. If you go back to 2006 with Mr. Olivanico, uh, who was poisoned in, uh, in England, uh, allegedly just a few micrograms of the material was put in his drink, and he died 23 days later. And basically what happens, you have the onset of the acute radiation syndrome, uh, the polonium, the radioactive uh, rays, the alpha particles from the polonium destroys the individual's bone marrow. And so you're susceptible to infection and uh, ultimately have a, a fatal event. It's not possible to detect it unless you have a suspicion that it's there and you do special radiographic procedures. You're referencing the case of Alexander Litvinenko, a Russian dissident who many believe um, was killed by Russian state security, yes? Yes, I am. And are there any resemblances between that case and the case of President Chavez, do you believe? If you look at Mr. Litvinenko... uh, he had some of the stigmata of radiation damage. He had hair loss, he had nausea and vomiting, his blood count dropped. I don't see this from what I know with Mr. Chavez, but, uh, you know, eventually it, one needs to have the samples to test. Uh, the testing is done by what's called alpha spectrometry, where you actually look at the alpha particles. The problem is they don't get outside the body. So from an exterior point of view, one really can't uh, detect the polonium. So you have to suspect that it's there in order to do the testing. The Venezuelan government has said that they believe that President Chavez's poisoning, if it was indeed a poisoning, uh, was similar to a poisoning that may have happened to Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat. You've written making some comparisons to the Arafat case and the Litvinenko case. Can you tell us about those links? Yes. Have. I have had the opportunity to look at uh, laboratory data from Mr. Arafat, and there, there was a, a reasonable suspicion that he had polonium-210 poisoning. The problem there was 
there was a, a substantial time lapse between when we had the suspicions and when he was exhumed and the testing was done. The polonium in uh, a cadaver has a half-life, a physical half-life of 138 days. So every 138 days, the amount goes down by half. So if one waits, then um, there's not enough material to test. So that's why I said, even though it's problematic, it's a good idea to get on with the procedure. Now, Yasser Arafat, his body was exhumed last fall, and, and there was some expectation that there would be some results from that testing this spring or even early in the summer, but I've not heard anything about it. Can you give us any of the latest on that? You know, I do not know anything about it either. Uh, I suspect that the French and the Palestinians have been quiet about that, but, uh, you know, I suspect it could be negative, and a negative result now would not necessarily mean that it was not there initially because so much time has gone by. But, uh, you know, like you, I, I don't know the latest results on that. Let's go back to the Polonium 210. Where can someone get this? Is this only available to to agencies like state security agencies like the Russians have? Well, the U.S. has it. The um, You know, most states have it. It can be produced in reactors. It can also be mined in uh, uh, from ore, from uranium ore. So it does take a fairly substantial facility to produce the material, but it's it's available. And in order to use it, you only need uh, like millionths of a gram, so just a few drops into a drink. Well, at least that's the hypothesis with Mr. Livanico. So, but would any anyone be able to acquire this other than state security agencies that uh, that have nuclear weapons? Yeah, most likely not. So, so we are talking about the only possibilities of uh, this being used are are by states that have well, nuclear capabilities. From my point of view, it's most likely to be acquired from state facilities that have uh, significant significant nuclear operations. I think it's possible that it could be funneled into private organizations, but from my own personal point of view, it would probably be a state organization. We've heard the Venezuelan president, current Venezuelan president, Nicolas Maduro, and, and other presidents in South America uh, talk about the possibility of Chavez being infected with cancer. Other than polonium-210, is there a way to infect somebody with cancer or to inject cancer into someone? Uh, that's typically not been successful. Uh, in the old days, those attempts were made in animals to, in, to transmit cancer from one, one to another, but no, it's not the case. I don't think we know what kind of cancer Mr. Chavez had. I've, I've read, just as you have in the literature, uh, the information's been tightly held, but uh, obviously it was a significant and ultimately lethal cancer. The Venezuelans have certainly held the information about his cancer as a state secret. We were just now learning within the past month that Ecuador's President Rafael Correa was party to information within a month or two of Chavez's death that he was told that he that Chavez was a terminal case. So we know that this, this is the details of this are still very highly secret, which which seems to foment speculation and conspiracy theories. Yes. And if he did have, you know, ultimately lethal cancer, I mean, this sort of mitigates against polonium-210. Uh, if you're undergoing chemotherapy, it could uh, mask the symptoms of polonium. Uh, like Mr. Livanico had loss of hair, he had nausea, vomiting. These are early symptoms of radiation exposure. You could have similar things in, in cancer chemotherapy, for example. So I don't know the details of Mr. Chavez's last few months, but 
could be a, a difficult situation to tease out. Anything else that you think would be useful to our listeners as as, as they ponder this? Well, case? I think it's an interesting hypothesis. Uh, I would urge the governments to go and examine this as expeditiously as possible because uh, the longer one waits, the more difficult it is to get a result. So uh, at this point, we still probably would have enough material there to get an answer. So a negative result would be important, I think, here. Thank you, Dr. Ronald Gones of the MJW Corporation, Tulane University, and the U.S. Department of Energy at Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Thank you for being our guest today on Latin Pulse. Okay, thank you, sir. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, HenteFlow, and MusicaQ. If you'd like to comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org, forward slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Kurt Devine and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is sponsored by the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. The program is produced at the university's School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV with additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2013, Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>